Well, I'd like to pray with you for a minute as we look into God's Word together and continue on in the life of our characters today. So let's pray together for a moment. Father, thank you so much that we've been able to be a people of praise, praising you, acknowledging you, singing the truths of Scripture, singing a prayer that we began with as we opened our hearts to you. And so we would continue in that posture as a people of praise, as a people with hope, open hearts, willing to be molded and shaped by you in any way you see fit. And we welcome that renovating work in our life. And so we pray these things as we consider your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations, grandfather, father, son. We've been walking through their lives for some time now before Christmas and now here in the new year. And the image I've been imparting or trying to plant deeply in your mind is that of passing the baton, like in a relay race. And the idea that we pass on to the next generation, in a certain sense, they pass back to us as well. Great truths. And in the lives of these three um, spiritual fathers that we have, sometimes they, they exhibited the things of God in such clear, incredible ways, lessons of great faith and trust in God. But sadly, at times, they did just the opposite, and they kind of illustrated for us what not to do. Uh, our passage today, is, it's a little bit like a seesaw, back and forth. And uh, sometimes close to one another, sometimes not so close at all, sometimes close in relationship with God, sometimes less so. And so this idea of seesaw is going to be seen in the chapters of scripture that we're going to be looking at. And many of us, I think, are like this with God, kind of seesawing back and forth at times. And yet there's two things that we celebrate and we appreciate and we sort of introduced somewhat last week and we want to continue in this light. Two things that we celebrate about God as we sometimes go through this seesawing motion. One of them is he does not abandon us when we disappoint him. There's a faithfulness and a constancy and a steadfastness about God that you really don't see anywhere in the world. And there's something really wonderful about that. We might abandon him at points. We might push him away. We may try to marginalize him in our life somehow, but he never walks out on us. Secondly, he loves us too much to let us continue in that kind of pattern. He will bring things into our life to get our attention, to draw us back, to discipline us, to admonish us if we need it, to encourage us if we need that. And so last week, if you recall, we were in chapter 28 of Genesis, and Jacob is running for his life. His brother has sworn to murder him because Jacob cheated his brother Esau, and he's on his camel, Jacob is, going uh, to a distant land, long time, long, long why, I almost said long drive, long walk, and he's got lots to think about as he goes. 
And he's wondering at first, is my brother going to chase after me and kill me? Secondly, after some time has gone by, I, I, I speculated that he began to think about the fact that the stuff I've done, I've really just dis- derailed my life. I've blown up my family. Have I, and he might have even gone here, have I messed up the promises of God, the promises that God gave to grandpa back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, and then reiterated a number of times in the chapters to come. And then the same promise was reaffirmed to my dad, Isaac. And he's wondering, have I messed this up, this promise from God to give us a land of our own? to build through our family, our family lineage, a great nation. And finally, to bless all of the peoples of this world down through the ages, right to us sitting here in this room or watching online this morning. That we would all be blessed through these incredible promises of God. And he has messed it up badly, and I'm guessing he's wondered. I wonder if my family could ever forgive me. I'm wondering if I could ever forgive myself. And sometimes that's the hardest person to forgive. And I'm wondering, most importantly, will God forgive me? So God gets him to go into a deep sleep. And during that sleep, he gives him a dream, a supernatural dream. And God still does that today. He still gives dreams and visions, not to everyone all the time, but when he chooses to do it. And in this dream with Jacob, God reaffirms the promise. He says, no, you haven't derailed this thing. The promise is still in place. And he communicates to him this. Listen, yeah, Jacob, you made some really wrong choices. You don't deserve this stuff. You tried your best to mess it up, but the sovereign will of Jehovah God will move through and will move forward. And Jacob, you know, in your life, you've been offered the sort of the straightforward way in relationship with me, but sadly you've picked to go your own way often in the hard way. And with that hard way, with the freedom that I give to everyone, when they choose the hard way, there will be harsh consequences that attaches. And so Jacob wakes up from this dream. And at that moment, I believe he has a moment where he says, you will be my God. It actually says in one of the verses, God, you will be my God. The God of the Bible, Jehovah God, the one that's created everyone, everything, a God that sustains everything, you will be my God. And maybe, just maybe, up until this point in his life, he's been riding on his mom and dad's and his grandpa and grandma's coattails. Kind of, relationship with God, hopefully that will kind of rub off on me a little bit. But now he's decided, no, it's much more than that. This is a very personal decision that they can't make for me, and I'm all in with you, God. And the question we asked last week was, is this the reality of your life? A very personal choice that no one else can make for you. 
And maybe you were incredibly blessed to grow up in a home where Jesus was honored. And maybe to a certain extent, you have been riding on mama and dad's or grandpa and grandma's coattails. Today is the day to make some decisions about that. To say, no, it's no longer going to be just that, as wonderful as that was. Today, this is going to be for me. And I'm going to be all in. In chapter 29 which we're going to be looking at here in just a moment. The journey continues. And in it, uh, two things happen. And I'm going to summarize parts of this. I encourage you to read all of these chapters, just wonderful stories of the faithfulness and the work and the action of God. Two things happen. First of all, as he continues on his camel ride, he's led to his relatives. And it's a safe place where he can wait out his brother's anger. And secondly, he's led to a place where he can find a believing wife, a wife who also is surrendered to Jehovah God, who has a relationship with God, a wife through whom the nation and the promise of God can be fulfilled. And so in verse 1 of chapter 29, the journey continues. Now his heart has changed. It's full of love and trust in God in a way I don't think it had been before. He's deeply excited about what God is going to do. And in a story that is reminiscent of what happens to his own father. And if you'll recall that story earlier, Abraham the grandpa sends his chief servant on a long journey to also find a believing wife for Isaac. And God leads him to Rebekah. And there's some similarities. There's some differences, but some similarities. They're on this journey with the same intent. They're on this journey to say, I want to hear from you, God, and I want to follow your leading to find a believing wife. And so this is their motivation and their heart. They go to the same region where there's a group of believers And I just want to pause and say this to you, which we talked about a few weeks ago, but I remind you of. If you believe God is leading you to find a spouse, first of all, I say to you, the gift of singleness from God is a gift. And you are every bit as valued, every bit as loved, every bit as respected as a person that's married. You're in the good company of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you believe God wants you to have a spouse and you want him to be front and center in this process, in both of these guys' lives, they made a long journey in order to find someone who had the same kind of relationship with God they did. And so I ask you this question. They go to incredible effort and incredible expense Where are you looking to find that potential spouse? Where are you looking? A couple of years before I met Debbie, my wife, I was sitting in grade 12 geotrig, as I remember, last semester of grade 12. And sitting in front of me, was a girl, Uh, 
I don't remember her name anymore, to be honest with you, but she just was really a nice person, really nice person, intelligent, friendly, all that stuff. And one day she turned around, she was sitting right in front of me, and she said, Scott, would you like to go to a party with me? And that question was one I had never really wrestled with significantly before. I'd kind of just gone with the flow before that. And it became a huge wrestle in my life. Why can't I go to that party with her? It's basically harmless. Why can't I go and and do this? It'll be fun. It'll be this. It'll be that. But at that point in my life, it identified a crucial question in my life, a much bigger question than was immediately before me. And the question was, was I going to go God's way? Ultimately, in who I dated in every other part of life, or was I going to start heading down a path that could potentially really lead me very decidedly away from him? And it was a big, big deal for me. And after I wrestled with God for a while, I said to her, uh, hey, thanks very much for inviting me, but no. Where are you looking? And more importantly, to whom are you looking to lead the process? So Jacob knows the stories of mom and dad. He goes to the same relative area where there are believers. He goes to a well, and in chapter 29, in a similar type setting to where Abraham's chief servant found his mom, Rebecca. And Jacob, quote unquote, happens to find this young woman. Just like it so, quote unquote, happened to find Rebecca. And I don't for one moment believe this just happened. I believe the sovereign God, the supernatural God, directed this encounter. And we read in chapter 29 that he meets Rachel. And in verse 11, it says he kissed her and began to weep aloud. Now, the kiss is not a romantic type kiss. It's just a form of greeting that we see later in the same passage when he meets Rachel's dad. He kisses him. It's just like kind of like a handshake for us. But then he begins to weep aloud. And I think this is a combination of a number of things coming together in his life. He's running for his life. He thinks he's blown up his family. He thinks maybe he's wrecked God's promises. And God has said to him, no, you haven't done that. I haven't abandoned you. I'm still with you no matter what. And now he sees this girl, he sees this region, and he realizes the guiding hand of God is involved in these circumstances. It is not an accident. There is no such thing as luck. This is the sovereign God stepping in and leading him. And it's an incredibly beautiful thing. And he's overwhelmed with emotion. He's overwhelmed with tears. But they're also not only emotional tears, but they're tears of celebration, of praise to our God. And I ask you this, as God intervenes in your life, how do you say thanks to him? How do you praise him? Is this this at the forefront of your life? And he comes 
now to his uncle Laban. Rachel brings him over there and he stays there and he goes to work for his uncle. And Debbie is going to continue the story in Genesis 29, beginning in verse 14, in your hard copy or on your device. Then Laban said to Jacob, you are my flesh and my blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. And Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your youngest daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. And so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, He took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week and then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. We see coming and going, We see closer, we see further. What are some of the evidences, the continued evidences of God's justice and mercy? Because when you look at this initially, it looks like just another huge mess. But at the same time as this huge mess, God has allowed some significant blessings. And so he's in his exile, and as he travels to this land, Jacob is able to find a Christian wife. He's able to build the promised lineage that God has given him. Actually, he finds two Christian wives, and we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. He finds himself in a safe place. This is another blessing from God. He finds himself in a place where he's accepted. He finds himself in a place where he gets a job. He finds himself in a place where he can practice his relationship with God without fear, like he would have had to if he'd lived anywhere else. And I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but in my experience, sometimes we think our life is a bit of a disaster zone, a bit of a mess. And I'm not for one moment trying to minimize the difficulties you may or may not be going on through. But in the midst of those things, God will continue to shower blessings 
significant ones often on us. Rick Warren describes it like this, and I think it's a great illustration. He says, it's like a set of railway tracks, that our life can be pictured that way. That one track represents some of the tough stuff we're going through, but running alongside at the exact same time in parallel, there's incredible blessings of God running side by side all the time. And depending on our personality and depending on our viewpoint in life, we sometimes will focus just on the one track and not on the other. But both of these things are going on in the life of Jacob at the same time and in our life too. And so Jacob is conned by his uncle, ironically, if you remember the story, in a very similar fashion to how he conned his dad and cheated his brother. Sadly, at this point, we now see three generations repeating the generational sin that they like to practice, and it's not broken. And Jacob had learned to play favorites and to pit one person against another from his mom and dad. And his mom and dad had learned to play favorites and to pit one person against another inappropriately from Abraham's, from Abraham and Sarah, the grandpa and the grandma. And this is exactly what he does as well. And as a result of this, we are all still burdened right to this day because of the choices these three generations made. And some of the great heartache in our world stems from the choices made by those three generations. He continues the practice of saying, I'm going to love one wife way more than I love the other. And it messed these two ladies up immensely. And I'm sure it made life really fun for himself. And so there's animosity we're going to read about between the two sisters. There's animosity between the one sister and the dad. There's animosity between the dad and the son-in-law. And let's begin to read about some of that hurt in verse 31 through 35. When the Lord saw that Leah, so this is the older sister, that Leah was not loved by Jacob. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Three generations of difficulty having children. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Remember, this is in a day when you got your name. It meant something. They would name people and communicate something very deliberately by the name that's chosen. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this son as well. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attracted to me. Listen to the heartache of this poor woman. Because I have borne him three sons, so she was, he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. And so there's this great affliction and heartache that's played out for all of us on the pages of Scripture. The story continues to unfold, and again, I encourage you to read 
all the other verses, but let's jump to verse 14 of chapter 30. Some time has gone by, and it says, During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out to the fields. That's the oldest son of Leah. Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Animosity between the sisters. Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. Messed up stuff, eh? Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son, which he does later if you keep reading the story in chapter 35. More things we learn here about the justice and the mercy of God. And just keep thinking about this image of the railway tracks. And so Leah is traumatized. Leah is abused, really. Leah is unloved, used by her father to con Jacob, unloved by her husband and deeply hurting. Yet on the other hand, she's blessed immensely because In that society, having sons like that was considered an incredible blessing. And two of those sons, uh, Levi and Judah, produce the most influential tribes. They're the forerunners, the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. The two most influential tribes in the nation of Israel. They begin, Levi begins the the royal priesthood, and Judah, from the line of Judah, comes the monarchy which ultimately led to Christ. God cares about hurting people. God wants to minister to willing, hurting people. Eventually, he allows Rachel to become pregnant, and then, in her words, to take away her disgrace. And as hard as as it can be for people that are trying to have children and can't, um, sadly, there was an additional stigma placed in that time in history on people. And this is why she says those words. God cares about hurting people. And I would say this to you, if you're here this morning, or you're listening online, If you're hurting, if you're unloved, if you have been treated wrongly, like so many people have, the God of the Bible wants to be involved in your life. The God of the Bible wants to care for you and heal you and minister to you as you need. If you let him. If you ask him. He won't force himself But if you let him, if you ask him. Now that doesn't mean that he may may or may not give you exactly 
what it, you think it is that you need. He may or may not give it to you exactly on the timeline that you think you need. And I'm not just, what I'm about to say, I, I'm really not trying to play with words right now. But I'm going to suggest to you that he knows better than you know yourself exactly what you need. He created you. He's eternal. He knows what's coming. He knows what's been. He knows exactly what you need better than you know yourself. He knows exactly when you need it better than you do or I do yourself. And it says in the book of Matthew, he loves to give good gifts to his children. And so I invite you, don't push him away. Don't push him away. Allow him into your life. Allow him to minister to you. There's also continued hurt. You think about the relationship between the two sisters and what it must have been like in their relationship with their husband. I can't imagine how hard it was. Rivalry, jealousy, competition, buying sexual favors, manipulating Rachel with some mandrake plants so she could be with her husband. This suggests a number of things, but perhaps the most obvious is don't have more than one spouse. Now, some people will go, well, hey, I've read the Old Testament and some of these biblical characters practice polygamy. What's up with that? Having more than one spouse. If you'll notice, if you read all of those stories, God never tells them to do that. They just decide to mimic the behavior of the non-believing surrounding people groups. And if you read the stories carefully and fully, you will see that it never has a good ending when they do this. There's always a bad outcome. And this is one of the classic examples of this. Horrible outcomes. The other thing that this teaches us, uh, and this is something you hear me say all the time, and you know why? Because right from the very first pages of Scripture to the last, all through, God says, you will be, I will be rather, I will be first in your life, bar none. And as soon as you try to operate in a way apart from that, there will be issues, there will be problems. After that, very clearly in scripture, it says, when it comes to human relationships, if God has directed you to be married, the most important human relationship you should have is with your spouse. And when you don't do that, there will be heartache and there will be pain, which is really what we see going on with these two wives. But it can be, deep, it can be fully applicable to money or career choice or children or any number of things that people say, I'm going to make more important this thing or this pursuit or this desire than my relationship with my spouse. And when this happened in this family, these three families, which they like to do, just look at the story and look at the heartache when they would put children and their decision to do end arounds on God 
first. And whenever they didn't follow God's leading, whenever they tried to make somebody else more important than their spouse, disaster was on the horizon. And so God first, and then if you're married, humanly speaking, your spouse. I say this to you again. Despite all that is going on in their lives, some of it quite God-honoring, some of it decidedly less so. God never turns his back on them. This image of the railway tracks is fully ongoing. There's some tough stuff on this side of the rails, but at the same time, there's incredible blessings. And we, we ask, are we asking for his help along the way? Are we inviting his intervention? Are we open to whatever it is that he wants to do? Often we're open to his intervention as long as it goes along with what we want. Are we saying with incredible sincerity and all that we can muster, thank you for what you've done? We don't have to necessarily weep with emotion like Jacob did, but he was all in going, thank you, God, that even though I did this, that, and the other thing, you're still with me. You have plans for me. You're fulfilling the promises of chapter 28. I praise you. I thank you. I'm overwhelmed with emotion, and I glorify you today. God, all through this, is holy. He is just. He is merciful. He's full of grace. He corrects us. He disciplines us. He holds us accountable. He dishes out copious amounts of mercy and grace. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come now, and they're going to invite us on this path once again of saying all praise to the God who loves me and sacrificed everything for me. Amen.